Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. Today, Rob and I are doing a Q&A session with a highly experienced coach, Jennifer Reel. We know you listen to Fast Talk to help you discover new ideas and think about your own training, but there's a lot more we can do to help you. At Fast Talk Labs, we can help you solve questions and overcome personal challenges. Start with a free consultation. Visit FastTalkLabs.com and you can set up a time to meet with our coaches, like our head coach, physiologist Ryan Kohler, who's sitting in front of me right now. Ryan is a level one certified USA cycling coach and holds a master's in sports nutrition. Let's talk. I can help you with training, workouts, nutrition, or just push your thinking. Schedule a free consult today at FastTalkLabs.com. Well, Jennifer Real, welcome to the show. We had you on not all that long ago when we uh, did an episode talking about Zwift racing, but you are not just a Zwift racer. You are also a doctor. You've managed a team. So you are bringing a wealth of experience to this show that we're very excited about. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and happy to talk with you all again. Well, we've actually got a bunch of questions that we pulled together for this one. So why don't we dive into it? And I will read the first question. This comes from Michael Bevan. I don't know where Michael lives. It's a recent question. Said, I train exclusively indoors for time trials. My racing power is currently about 320 watts. To get past the monotony of indoor training, I decided to do the following two times per week. 400 watts for one minute, then 150 watts for one minute, and repeat for 23 intervals. Is that is all I have time for. The normalized power was 330 watts for 43 minutes. Weather permitting, I would do a road session on a Saturday, and he does 2 by 20 minutes mostly. I was also able to TT at 320 watts for 30 minutes. Any thoughts on this approach? Thanks, Mike. Well, Jen, you want to take the first crack at this one? So my thoughts on this are that there's a lot of ways to reduce the monotony of indoor training. Interval workouts, a lot of people, maybe that's enough for them. I can't stand doing intervals. (laughs) So I actually replace interval workouts with Zwift races. So once a week, I'll do the Zwift Racing League with my team. And that's kind of my high intensity for the week. And I think that that can keep it more fun. And I personally am able to hit higher powers in a race than I'll ever be able to hit in an interval and it makes it much more interesting. And what you can do is look for races that look for the type of intervals that you're looking for. So say you want one-minute efforts, do a race on Innsbruck ring. Say you want more of really short sprint-type efforts, do a Crip City race. If you want a 20-minute interval, look for something on the Innsbruck UCI or the the Epic KOM. So there's ways to, to do that. And then using... Zwift, which has, what, 100 races an hour these days, (laughs) you should be able to find something. And I think that helps keep it fun. The other thing is you can use team time trials for a really nice over-under type workout, which is what I did yesterday. So there are definitely ways to break up the monotony of indoor training and and keep it more fun. Yeah, I think that indoor training offers us this opportunity, right? And you know, we're saying Zwift specifically, and Zwift is great. Zwift is what I use. Trevor, I think that you're on it too. There are other platforms. So if somebody has a different platform that they love, then that's great. 
you know, for me, the biggest takeaway of this is I'm surprised that to deal with monotony, they're doing a workout that's one minute on, one minute off for, for 23. This is somebody that can handle monotony without much issue because I would fall over out of boredom from from doing something like that. And, you know, uh, Jen, I think that I agree with you that racing is a really great way to reduce that monotony. It might not be uh, specific to a type of energy system. And so I do love to do some workouts uh, in addition to the racing. But um, I think that you're sort of spot on with a good way to do that. And uh, maybe take a rest break in here. That could break up some of that monotony too. My biggest comment on this is making sure you're targeting the right energy systems. So I noticed he brought up, the, well, my normalized power is 3.30 for 43 minutes. So I think I'm kind of accomplishing that, getting a little above my time trial power. But it isn't saying how you're generating that power how you're getting that normalized power. So I would not look at that number and go, oh, that's good for building your time trialing. One minute at 400 watts, if your threshold is around 320, you're still going to hit that aerobic system. It's more maximal aerobic system. So you're going to see some gains, but this isn't the type of work I typically see time trialers do. Or if they do this, this is kind of after they've done their hard threshold type work this is what they top off with. So I, I don't think you're aiding your time trial performance as, as much as you think you are with this workout. If you really don't like those longer threshold workouts, I agree with what both of you are saying, which is hop on Zwift, do a Zwift time trial. I'll admit when I'm doing my threshold workout, uh, I often do them on Zwift. And if I'm feeling a little bored, so let's say I'm doing five by fives or four by eights, I might get through a couple of them and then look for a Zwift time trial, hop in and do a race and, and push myself a little bit. Yeah, something that's interesting if we want to talk specifically about workouts, and, and this is something Neil Henderson actually had mentioned to me is, you know, after doing a set of 30-30s or he's doing one minute on, one minute off here, to settle directly into like a 95% of threshold for five minutes after that. So instead of just doing 23 straight intervals, which is 20, what, that's 46 minutes worth of work here, break that in half. Maybe do four sets of five minute on, minute off, and then a, a five minute or something after that, or three sets of five, and then a five minute after each one. And I think that we'll get to, as Trevor's saying, now we're talking about how do you sustain that threshold power, not just sort of bump up against that 120% of uh, you know threshold that he's looking at here and, and maximal aerobic development. All right. So what's our next question? Yeah, so uh, Giancarlo Bianchi uh, sent us a message. And let's see, this is about Whoop and sleep data. I think that we all, three of us, have experience with Whoop. So let's dive in here. It says, hello, guys and girls. I've been using Whoop since last October. I feel like it's most useful in helping you hone the skill of listening to your body. One thing I've been having trouble and issues with lately is sleep. It would seem I don't sleep pretty much. On average, I get about five and a half to six hours of sleep and somehow I'm able to function. I'm in bed by 9 or 10, usually wake up pretty early, 5 or 6 a.m. with the sunlight, without an alarm, and usually feel fine. One thing I've started to see is when I wake up at 5 or so, my whoop reading would be in the green and heart rate variability would be in a good range. However, despite this reading, I would say I slept something silly like uh, four and a half hours. And sometimes I try to get another sleep cycle in and, and fall back asleep. I'd usually sleep another half hour to an hour, but when I do, the new reading and the heart rate variability are worse than they were before, which is puzzling. When I asked my wife about this, she asked if I always slept such short hours since I got the whoop. I told her I didn't know, and I went back, looked in training peaks, and saw something interesting. 
there is definitely a shift in my sleep around the time I started more formal training or training with structure. So I would suspect that I am carrying more cortisol in my body and that's maybe why I was sleeping less. My questions are, is the whole needing eight hours of sleep a myth? It would seem I'm able to function just fine with less, so should I be worried at all? What might have caused the shift in my sleep when I started training? Is my theory about cortisol sound or is there something else that's causing it? And then there's some relevant graphs below, which maybe we can get up in the copy on the website. But Jen, do you want to do you want to tackle the sleep question? Sure. I think this is a great question and I'm excited to to speak to it because sleep is kind of my baby. <laughs> The first thing I would pull out of this is that he says he goes to bed about nine or 10 and gets up at five or six, which is like eight or nine hours in bed, actually. But then he says he gets five and a half to six hours of sleep. So I'm wondering, is he not sleeping well when he's in bed or is his whoop not picking up his sleep, you know, appropriately? Like I know if you don't wear it tight enough, sometimes it doesn't pick everything up. So that seems a bit confusing to me, but forgetting that, It says that he wakes up without an alarm and he feels fine. And that's really key because if you're waking up without an alarm and you're, you're getting up when your body tells you you've had enough sleep, then that's almost all you you really need to know. I know a lot of the sleep trackers, not just the whoop, um, but other ones, like I have a friend who uses the polar and it just, it never picks up her sleep when she falls asleep right away. And this is like the first hour every time. So some of them might might do that and it may just not be picking it up accurately for him. As for is eight hours of sleep a myth? No. (laughs) There are maybe anywhere from one to 5% of the population has some sort of gene mutation where they can get by on less than six hours of sleep a night and that's actually all that they need. There are a few different genes where mutations have been studied that find that, but that's a very small percentage of the population. Is it possible that Giancarlo is one of those people? Yes, but in general, I would not assume that you are one of those people that only needs six hours of sleep. Most people need more. And the best way to know how much sleep you need is you know, to go on vacation and <laughs> go to sleep when you're tired and wake up when you're not and track that and, and, and see. But the other thing I wanted to speak to is his decreased sleep when he started training. So he says he works 40 hours a week and he trains 12 to 15 hours a week. That's a lot. That's a big amount of work and training. And if he's working that much, training that much, and only sleeping six hours a night, that to me raises some red flags of concern for getting into maybe an overtraining type syndrome where lack of sleep is one of the first symptoms and poor sleep. So that's something I would definitely be concerned about. When he talks about going back to sleep and then getting a new reading that's worse than before, that's not particularly surprising because uh, the way that WHOOP measures the recovery score for your HRV is it uses your last perceived deep sleep of the night. So it's going to change if you're going back to sleep and getting another a different episode of deep sleep. And then like, if that's not his regular, if that's not what his body wants, if it's not what his body needs, I, I could see that it could somehow mess it up and give him a, a worse reading. I would say if you wake up and you're not tired, don't go back to sleep. Definitely, I think I'd like to hear him listening more to his body and not just a number in this. Well, another thing I'll add to that, we have cycles through the night and something they have shown in the sleep research is 
it's most important to complete a full cycle and wake up at the, the, the waking phase in that cycle, that you will actually feel more rested doing that than getting an additional 30, 45 minutes of sleep and waking up at the wrong point in, in your cycle. So that's the, your alarm goes off, you're, you're at the deep phase of your cycle and you just can't move, uh, even though you feel like you, you got a lot of hours. And it, it, I did notice that he said, well, I wake up naturally. So that means he's, he's waking up at the end of a cycle. Then he tries to go back to sleep, get another 30 minutes, which means if he's going into another cycle, he's now waking himself up at the wrong point. So I would actually recommend against doing that. And I agree completely with what you said before. You have to remember the WHOOP and a lot of these trackers give you two bits of information. One is your time in bed. The other is the time that it thinks that you were asleep. And depending on the individual, sometimes it's going to underestimate the time that it thinks you were asleep. But you're, you're right. He's in bed eight hours. So he's, he's getting a good night. Yeah, there's definitely sort of two things here, right? There's the Whoop-specific stuff, which is fine. It, it, it's a device that has its quirks. Love them or hate them, that's sort of your decision. The other side of this is the sleep side, and maybe that's something that we have a little bit more science in, a little bit more objective knowledge. And, uh, you know, personally, I think that there is there's a, a range of, I guess, how much sleep you need, right? Because need or optimal and all of that is sort of relative per person. And, you know, Jen, I think that what you're saying, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, for, for being optimal, for optimal performance, for optimal recovery, for optimal adaptation, maybe even for optimal health and longevity over time, because we know that lack of sleep can have health consequences. That's where we want to be, you know, eight hours for most people is, is fulfilling the more of the optimal side of things, right? Definitely. Yeah. Not just for performance, but for, for longevity and health. And I mean, there are studies showing that Sleeping less than six hours a night increases your risk of dementia. And so, you know, we're all athletes, but we're also, many of us are also concerned about our, our long-term health. So sleep is not just important for, for athletic performance and recovery, but for your longevity. Sure. I just want to touch on one thing to, because he asked specifically, Jen, as you pointed out, he's working a lot. He's riding a lot. Is increased cortisol levels potentially the reason that you know, because I know that this happens to me. If, if I train a lot, I tend to sleep less as well. And, and I will say one of my personal first signs of, of really reaching over training is that I begin waking up at about, I fall asleep dead tired and I wake up about two o'clock in the morning and I cannot fall back asleep until four or 5 a.m. And then I fall back for an hour or so. Is it cortisol that might cause these disrupted sleep patterns or is it something else? I mean, it's definitely multifactorial, but cortisol is a big part of it. And I totally agree with you that sleep being a first sign of maybe a bit of a warning when you're getting into and overextending yourself or overtraining, because I, that's the same way for me. If I start not sleeping well and getting cranky, I know that I need to start paying attention and watching out because I dug myself into a very deep hole <laughs> like that. And I've learned. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, and what, what the other thing that I thought was interesting, you know, he said he didn't mention when he trains, but mm. it, it definitely shows in his graph that when he started with structured training, his sleep went down. I also wonder, does he train at night? To get in that big hour, yeah. Yeah, that could be messing up his sleep as well if he's doing some hard training and then trying to go to bed a couple of hours later. Not sure, but that's something to think about. So I... I took a look at the research last night because I was interested in that as well. And there were a bunch of studies on cortisol and sleep showing that 
it does actually have a big impact on sleep. And so I'm actually looking at one right now that says nocturnal cortisol release in relation to sleep structure. And I found this uh, line in the, their conclusions quite interesting, which says cortisol increases were not, I can never pronounce this word, committent. You want to say Incompetent. that correctly? Thank you. <laughs> With a specific sleep stage, but generally accompanied prolonged waking periods. These findings tend to imply that cortisol-releasing mechanisms may be involved in the regulation of sleep. Fair enough. So there we go. Jen, I think that your training later in the day theory is is interesting, and whether or not Giancarlo is doing that, I think that uh, a lot of listeners do. Are there best practices for when we ought to be finished with training in relation to when we're trying to go to bed? Is, is it an hour? How, how do we even know when we need to be wrapping things up? A lot of it will depend on the type of training you're doing. If you're just doing an endurance ride, recovery ride, that shouldn't affect your sleep at all. But if you're doing something super high intensity, you're doing high intensity intervals, or you're doing a race, it's going to take you some time to wind down. And everybody is a little bit different, but I would say that try to give yourself at least a couple of hours before finishing one of a high intensity workout or race before trying to go to sleep. Now, that being said, a lot of us are time crunched and we, we do what we can with what we have. And um, if you know, you got three kids and your only time to train is after you put them to bed. Well, um, you do what you can and maybe try some melatonin right after to try to help your body get into the sleep mode. Nice. I love it. So Giancarlo, if you're out there listening, separate the whoop from the sleep itself. Try to get a little bit more sleep in. If you need to maybe bring down your training a little bit, then uh, that's going to help your adaptation. And uh, sleep is important, you know. And Trevor, it looks like the next question is uh, kind of a recovery question too. Yep. So this comes from Sasha Helmy. She says, Hi, Trevor. I recently started listening to your show. It has really helped my training. COVID got me into riding a bike. And now that racing has started, I've decided to try my first race this spring. I'm nervous, but I'm also really excited about my new adventure. What I wanted to ask you about is recovery. You've talked a lot about it on the show. But I was wondering if it's different for someone like me, a woman who is fairly new to the sport. In particular, does my cycle impact the amount of rest and recovery that I need? So I think this is a great question. And I'm excited that women are starting to think about how does training and recovery affect me differently as a woman, and especially women who are new to training. I know when I started training, I had a very hard time taking rest days. I just felt like, oh, I have to train all the time. And, and you don't really trust. I didn't trust the process. And I dug myself into a deep hole and got an injury. And it, it took a really long and painful process to learn to take rest and recovery. Um, now I take two rest days a week. I don't even usually do recovery rides on my rest days. I do nothing. I enjoy it. I walk around with my dogs. I, I try to do things that are relaxing and peaceful. And I really give my body that recovery that it needs. And it is harder for women to recover. I mean, science shows that women cannot recover to the same amount as a man. And that has to do with the lack of testosterone. I mean, testosterone is a great recovery agent. It's very important for women to get the recovery that they need. And even as a new athlete and a new trainer, you have to build that in build recovery days into your week and build recovery weeks into your training cycle because your body needs that. And if you don't do it, it will catch up with you eventually. As for this, her question about does the cycle impact the amount of rest and recovery 
that she needs? That's a super good question. And we do know that in the first half of a woman's cycle where your estrogen and progesterone are the lowest, that's when you have the best ability to recover from hard training. So if you want to try to put your harder intervals and your hard training into that time frame, you might find that you're better able to recover and you're better able to absorb that training. I don't particularly train around my cycle. I know some women do. I really tend to do more of the traditional, you know, three weeks training, one week of rest. Now, that being said, if I ever, when I hit my next plateau, I think that's the next thing I'm going to do is try to train around my cycle with the intensity and see if I can get some extra gains out there, which I find interesting. Stacey Sims has a lot of great information about training for women and the cycle. And I would, I would uh, suggest Sasha maybe look up her book, Roar, or check her out on social media. Yeah, I think that there's so much interesting stuff to unpack here. The beginner cyclist, the beginner athlete, as you're pointing out, Jen, there's so much that you're trying to recover from, right? We're not just talking about the endurance load. We're also talking about the musculoskeletal stuff of, of being a new runner, of being in a bike position, right? And it takes those ligaments and tendons and everything a long time to really get up to speed, even though your muscles might be uh, adapting a little bit faster, so I think always with with a, a beginner rider or runner, it is important to to take that time. The other thing that we see is that people tend to train too hard when they don't know better, right? And that alone means more recovery. So, you know, as as you're building into your journey here, yeah, it's okay to take a bit more time off. It's okay to listen to your body. It's okay to get rid of all of that soreness, whatever it, it takes. Jen, in, in regard to this menstrual cycle, then... You know, as you're pointing out, it is interesting. Um, I, I love sort of your idea of putting the harder work in earlier um, because we also know that that's when the body is better at using glucose um, and carbohydrate in general as fuel. And so um, some strength training adaptation might be a little bit better during that time of the cycle. You know, but at the same time, I think as you're pointing out, we're getting to marginal gains at that point, right? And solid training is solid training and, and that comes first. I would not, um, you know, time to the cycle and and forget training principles. But uh, yeah, if everything else is going well, then uh, that's a marginal gain that might get you a little more. Yeah, something I want to add to that, because several of the, the women that have been contributing at Fast Talk Labs have actually had this discussion with us that there has been this bit of a misinterpretation that when you're in the luteal phase, which is the, the second part of your cycle or the second half, so basically, your your hormones are high and they're catabolic, which means your body's breaking down a little bit. There's this misinterpretation that training during that phase is, is pointless, which is not how you should see it. It's not going to be as productive. So I, I agree, if you're going to do a big training week, do it in that, that earlier phase. But training still is productive during the luteal phase. You just might have to build in a little more rest might not be the best time to say, hey, I'm going to do a big five-day training block. That might not be the best time to do it. Um, yeah, one other thing that I just wanted to add into this question that I, that I didn't mention earlier is that it, it's really easy for new athletes to do too much intensity, which, which you touched on. And I think it's important for a new athlete, especially for a woman, to really try to keep your intensity to two, no more than two days a week. Yep. And the rest of your rides should be easy. And as a new athlete, honestly, you may want to just do one day of intensity a week, or one day of hard hard riding. And 
the rest of it should be comfortable endurance easy riding because you it takes time to build those the adaptations and the resilience in your body to tolerate more hard training which is a great point and when you're a new athlete it does not take a lot of training stress to produce adaptations that's a great thing about being a new athlete pros train 30 hours a week because they have to they are at such a high level to get any more gain, they, they have to train at ridiculous levels. But if you're new, you don't have to be anywhere close to that. As you said, even just one intensity session a week, you're going to see some big gains. It's all relative. Yeah, important point. Listeners, we are pleased to announce a new module in the Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel. Our fourth module focuses on the business of coaching. Rob and I know exactly what it's like to start a coaching business. We're both coaches and we've seen our profession shift and change a lot over the past two decades. We know that coaching can often feel just like the easy part. Building a business takes a variety of skills, many unfamiliar and specialized, and some which can take years of trial and error to master. In the business of coaching, you can see how coaches Joe Friel, Frank Overton, Mike Ricci, Gordo Byrne, and Philip Hatzitz got started, evolved their business models, achieved profitability, marketed for growth, and ultimately built long-lasting, successful coaching businesses. Accelerate your practice. Join now at the new Coaching Essentials member level or get access for free through your USA Cycling Coach membership. See more today at FastTalkLabs.com. We have uh, Jeff Pugsley wrote in um, about using erg mode uh, when you're on the trainer. And just real quick, erg mode is sort of when the trainer is controlling the effort that you're doing. And uh, you can vary your cadence and the trainer adjusts to make sure that you're doing the same wattage as opposed to more of a free mode where uh, you shift, you ride harder, your watts are going to go up. So just, just for listeners. Says, um, let's see, I love your podcast. I've been working through all the episodes, thank you, and have found many valuable training tips. As someone with a science background, they're a doctor, they're a radiologist, who is regularly digging into the methods section of journal articles, I really appreciate the level of science understanding and critique that you bring to the podcast. Making us feel so good. My cycling interests are primarily mountain bike, and I do a variety of events from 100-mile races to enduro. He's my kind of guy. I have a question for you, which I haven't found answers. Erg mode on the trainer wasn't really addressed on your trainer podcast, and I can't find any articles that specifically address pros and cons in the literature. Erg mode locks you into a certain wattage and you get to choose the cadence. While there are downsides to doing this all the time, you don't develop a feel for maintaining an effort, so on and so forth. I have found that in certain types of intervals, it allows me to go longer and dig deeper than I otherwise would be able to. For example, efforts around threshold or VO2 max, I can hold the effort significantly longer in erg mode. I know some of this is mental and some is the ability to select precisely preferred cadence. If the goal is fatiguing the system to induce adaptations, it would seem erg mode could be a good thing. But it is not the same as real-world riding. I'm wondering what the science is on comparing erg to non-erg training and if there are times that you prescribe erg intervals. Jen, I know you spend a lot of time on the trainers. Is, is erg mode something that you use regularly? I used to. I don't really use erg mode anymore. The times I use it are if I want to do like an endurance ride on the trainer or a recovery ride and I want to keep myself honest from going too hard. But 
I pulled, I did poll my Sarah Snowpins teammates and some of them are coaches and all of them are pretty elite athletes about their thoughts on ERG. And it's really funny because you really, it's very polarizing. People either love it and they do it all the time or they hate it and they never use it. <laughs> yep. So I think he, he's really hit the nail on the head when he says that there are downsides to using it all the time. And that is very true. If you're always doing ERG and your goal is training for outdoors, you do lose that ability to produce the power yourself without being forced to make it. Think of ERG mode as riding up a climb. You're, you're forced to produce that power. But if you're always riding up a climb and then you, you get on a flat road or a downhill and you, you, can't, you can't do the same power. So that can be a negative if you're doing ERG mode all the time. Some of the, our teammates will, who are coaches will tell their athletes to, if you're doing, you know, maybe four, four by five intervals, do a couple of them in ERG mode, a couple of them not in ERG mode. But I would say do, do what you like. And if he likes doing ERG mode and it enables him to hold his intervals longer, I think that's great. And I would say definitely go for that. Now, don't ride always in ERG mode and don't lose that ability to produce power on your own. I like the idea of throwing in a couple intervals that are not in ERG mode. And I'm not aware of any science that says ERG mode or non-ERG mode is better. It seems that people have just more of a a passion about it. (laughs) Different trainers also do erg mode differently. And some trainers are, are not very good at bringing the power up slowly or keeping it. And so a lot of it is also trainer dependent on if you're going to be comfortable and happy in erg mode. Yeah, that's a really good point because I've had some bad trainers where, let's say I set an interval at 300 watts. When it gets to that start of that interval, it's going to jump up to 400, then go down to 250, then go up to 375. And it does this back and forth until it finally lands on the right wattage. And that can really kill your legs. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna throw in an unpaid plug here, right? Because, uh, Jen, you're on the, the SARS No Pins cycling team, right? And I have ridden pretty much all the trainers on the market. And the, uh, the SARS, the hammer, is by far the best at, at intervals. So, uh, you know, unpaid plug. And, uh, you know, thanks for making a good product out there. Yeah, the Saras H3 is a great trainer. It does a really good job with the erg mode and the intervals. I imagine if you're, if, especially if you're riding like an older trainer or you're doing a wheel off trainer, I, I could see how erg mode would be would be rubbish and you, you might not even even want to try it. And it's definitely erg mode is not good for short intervals. I wouldn't, I would never use it for anything less than a few minutes. Um, you don't want to use it for your you know, your 4020s or your sprint workouts, things like that. Forget early mode for that. It's too slow to react in any trainer and it's not going to accomplish your goals. I did once try a set of 2010 Tabatas in erg mode just to see what it was like. Couldn't get through the set because it would, the brake mechanism couldn't keep up. And within a couple intervals, it was locking down the resistance so hard I couldn't pedal anymore. So agree with you. It's great for more of a threshold type interval, but I, I would definitely not use erg mode for, for short, high intensity. Trevor, is this all feel? Is this all a subjective thing? Or do you know of any research? Jen said she didn't, I don't, but you're the, you're the research I've guy. Never seen, well, so I do vaguely remember seeing a study a while back and I looked for it last night. I couldn't find it. 
that looked at the neuromuscular recruitment patterns between erg mode and, and self-pacing. And there were slight differences. And my guess would be you're probably in erg mode. The, the power phase is going to be a little bit longer because it's keeping that steady resistance against you. So, but that, that's a guess. I have not seen any specific studies comparing them. So I think all of us are just giving our opinion. You know, my personal opinion is I actually really like erg mode. You know, in the winter, in, in December, January, I use it for almost all of my intervals because it's just, to me, makes it easier. Just get it done. It keeps the, the workout high quality and you don't have to think too much. But I do agree that if you're always in erg mode, you don't learn how to pace yourself. So even if you use it for a while, you need that period of time where you do your intervals either self-paced on the trainer or out on the road and learn how to hold that power. Yeah, I think that Jeff really, in his question, his question answers his question, if you think about it, right? Because he's identifying all of the, the pros and the cons of using erg mode. And I think that we're all agreeing with him that you have to learn how to suffer. You have to be in control of your own pain if you do want to have high performance. But erg mode can be a great tool. Maybe it's not a tool that you use all the time. You have to do some workouts outside where you can't do it. But, you know, I'm kind of on the same page, at least Trevor, with you of I'm erg mode all the time if I'm on the trainer. And when I say all the time, I mean literally every single ride. My base rides on the trainer are actually an erg program called base revels. So if anybody follows me on uh, Strava, you'll just see base revels, base revels, base revels all day long. Um, and it's just like a little fluctuating, you know, within my base sort of zone. I put that on, I watch YouTube, I zone out. <laughs> You're doing your base rides. Yeah, dude. Mode. That way I don't have to pay attention to it. You know, here's the thing that I struggle with, right? I... I you know, I think that kind of I started doing this in when I was using like Trainer Road and other programs, you know, and uh, I didn't want to just say set it at 200 watts. I'm oh, sorry, I didn't want to set it at my base at 325 watts. <laughs> because because that's we already did the sleep question <laughs> because that's monotonous cover dreaming later so i so i did that but then when i moved over into zwift and i hate to say this if you go up and down hills in zwift and it changes your resistance you have to pay attention to what you're doing yes so i don't like watching the screen and having to shift <laughs> because i want to watch i want to watch the i watched like um whole episodes or seasons of of all different shows you know that's this God turning into you should a, be it, on your bike and it, looking at what's ahead of you it's turning into a lame story i know but you know, for me, um, you know, with as much time I spend on the trainer with kids and everything else, I just, I don't want to focus on the trainer unless I'm doing a race or something, but that's, that's me, you know, okay. you do you. We have learned something new about Rob. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. I want to find out what else in your life you do in erg mode. What else I do in erg mode? I make it through my day in erg mode pretty there much based on the schedule I keep. All right, so let's move on to this next question. This comes from Doug Russo from Rochester, New York. Wait, why do you keep reading the short questions? You give me the ones that are three paragraphs long. Yes, because the three paragraphs long. Oh, my God. <laughs> Listeners, Trevor set this up. He's like, let's do every other question and I'll start. Like, I think he stacked the deck against me. I completely stacked the deck and I feel no guilt about that whatsoever. Okay, so Doug asks... I am curious about vitamin D supplementation as here in Rochester, New York, the winter season rarely sees sunshine. And even when it does peak out, you are riding with full skin coverage. What are your thoughts? 
I'm going to let Jen ultimately take this because... As, well, I'm as going a, to throw to you first. As a doctor, well, I'm jumping in, baby. Yep. And the reason I'm jumping in, Trevor, is probably the same reason you want to. I've lived in Lake Placid. I've lived in Ithaca. And I will say, I know the struggle of upstate New York. The struggle is real. So... Yep. So what are your thoughts? I, I have no thoughts. My thoughts are what are Jen's thoughts? As as the uh, internal medicine doctor, I'm going to let Jen, you know, take care of this. She's she's the one with the with the knowledge that I definitely don't have. So I'm excited to answer this question because I love vitamin D and I'm a huge proponent of it. And there's a huge prevalence of vitamin D deficiency in uh, this country. Data suggests that is up to 70% of the U.S. population is deficient in vitamin D at any given time. Obviously, that's more likely going to be in the northern parts of the country, definitely more so in the winter. But even if you, if you live in a, a very northern latitude, even, even in the summer, you know, you're, the sun might not be getting out totally overhead. You might not be getting all of those rays and you could be vitamin deficient year round. Also, if you have darker skin, you have a higher risk of vitamin D deficiency because it takes more sunlight to produce that vitamin D. Vitamin D is an incredibly important vitamin because it's not just a vitamin, it's actually a, a pro-hormone. And it's something that, your body has to synthesize from sunlight. And now if you're out and you're wearing sunscreen every time you're out in the sun, which is great, so you don't get skin cancer, but you might not be getting as much vitamin D from the sun as you think. And there are all sorts of things that can inhibit your body's ability to produce vitamin D from sun. Obesity is one of them because that acts as a reservoir for the, the pro-molecules, and so it can't be synthesized into the active form of vitamin D as much. So the, the, the big point is that lots of people are vitamin D deficient, and they probably don't know it. It's a very easy blood test that you can get done um, with your doctor. Now, when you look at that report from that blood test, it may say, it'll give you a number, and then it'll often say if you're deficient or not. Now, a lab test will usually define vitamin D deficient as um, less than 30. Sometimes they have a lower threshold. But there's a difference between deficient and optimal. So I think optimal vitamin D levels for athletes should be at least 50, and that's where I like to keep mine. So that's the best way to check your level. As for some interesting data about vitamin D, it's one of the few uh, supplements that actually has some information on improving performance. So there was um, a study recently on male soccer players, which took, they took 6,000 units of vitamin D, which is a pretty high dose. Most people don't take that much. And it showed, number one, that almost all of them were vitamin D deficient in the winter, which they probably didn't know. And then number two, after that supplementation, they increased their testosterone levels and they increased their uh, maximal sprint performance. And there was another recent study that was done that gave athletes 2,000 units of vitamin D daily for two months. And that showed that they increased their maximal oxygen consumption by 28% and increased their muscle strength by 18%. And that was a twin study where they took identical twins and they gave half of them vitamin D and half of them they didn't. And so those are, those are pretty impressive numbers for taking a vitamin. And so I'm a huge proponent of vitamin D. I think everybody probably should get your levels checked or just take some. I personally take about 4,000 units a day, which is is probably the maximum level that you can safely take without 
ending up with problems because more is not better. You can get vitamin D toxic. You can take too much and end up with high calcium levels. So don't do that. Don't think more is always better. But most people, it's pretty safe to take up to 4,000 units a day. So interestingly on that, there actually is a a kind of a mixed opinion on this. There was research that was done back in about 2010 where they reanalyzed how they came up with the the recommendations, which right now I think is one to 2,000 IU per day, and showed that there were actually mistakes in those calculations. And so these researchers have proposed that our needs are actually much higher, closer to the the 5,000 IU per day. FDA has not adjusted those recommendations, but I read that research and it was pretty convincing to me. So I'm I'm the same as you. I I actually take 5,000 IU a day, but recommendations are lower than that. And you brought up a really good point that even though we call it a vitamin, it's actually not a vitamin. It is a a pro-hormone that has many impacts on our, our body. You know, it's essential to our immune system. It helps bone health, as you pointed out. It impacts calcium absorption. And a lot of Americans are uh, are vitamin D deficient. So it's a, it's a really important one to address. All right, let's see. Next question um, is from Alexa Cross here, and it's about Zwift racing. So Trevor, thank you for letting me have a short one. Uh, it's uh, two very short paragraphs. Find another long one to give you, unfortunately. Uh, let's see. It says, I really got into Zwift racing in 2020 and 21 when there wasn't any racing going on around me. It's a lot of fun and keeps me motivated. This year... On the road racing is coming back, and I'm wondering how I balance the two. Can I do both Zwift and weekend road races at the same time, or is that too much intensity? Should I give up my Zwift events until the road season around me is done? Jen, again, I think that you're a perfect person to answer this. You were telling us earlier that you got into Zwift racing, and that became primary when you lived in Hawaii, and uh, there wasn't really racing around you, but you've moved and there's racing again. So you, you and Alexa are basically the same person. (laughs) Yep, we are in the same boat. And I think it's a good question. And it's it's pertinent, especially this time of year uh, when the road races are coming back on. I think for me personally, I love my Zwift racing. I have a team that I race with and it's, it's fun. So my Tuesday, my Tuesday Zwift racing league with my teammates is, it's fun. I get my high intensity in and I have a blast. So I keep doing it almost year round, even with in real life racing on the weekends, but you have to be careful because especially as a woman, you know, you can't recover as quickly. And so you really have to listen to your body when you're doing things like that. What I would say is if I'm racing Zwift on Tuesday and racing on the weekend, I don't do any other intensity the rest of the week. Everything else is just endurance and volume. I'm not trying to do, you know, 40 20s on Thursday as well or something like that. And then I also make sure that I have a strong focus on sleep and recovery days when I'm trying to do things like that. And you can do it. You can definitely do it, but you have to balance it. You have to be careful. You have to do a good job with your nutrition, you know, your protein and your carbs and all of that. If it's fun, it keeps you motivated. I would say try to do it, but listen to your body and make sure you're not, you're not overdoing it. And there may be weeks where you need to take a break. Don't forget, you still need rest weeks, uh, but do what's fun. I think you hit on the, the most important thing with using Zwift racing during the season, which is it is intensity. So if you're going to hop on a a Tuesday or a Thursday night Zwift race, that's instead of some sort of interval work. And I would, in that case, make sure 
that it is high quality, that you're hurting yourself, that you're getting that intensity, that you're, you're getting that workout that you need. But otherwise, I, I agree. I think it's a great way to, to get a good hard workout and, and to have some fun. I personally am a proponent of people thinking about races as workouts specifically sometimes. And, uh, you know, maybe for peak performance, uh, that really only matters in, in certain things, say a state championship or, or something like that. And that you don't necessarily have to be perfect for every single race or finish first or on the podium. And maybe this goes against how some other people feel. But I know personally with Zwift racing for me, sometimes I go in with a specific goal. I'm going to crush every single climb as hard as I can. And then I'm going to back off and I'm going to recover and I'm going to sit in the pack. And it's not so much about trying to win the race, be first across the line. It's about using that race and those competitors to motivate me, to help me do my workout that much harder. And if you want to do both, maybe that's an interesting way to to look at this situation too. I really like what you said about using races as training. And I know this isn't exactly a question, but I think it, if it's something I'd like to speak to because since I moved to Texas in December, um, I've been able to do a lot more outdoor races than I was ever able to do before. And using races as training has really helped me to take my racing ability kind of to the, to the next level. Because if you're only doing a couple of races a year, you know, there's so much pressure in every single race to perform. Well, if you're racing every week, there's no pressure. Like you're going to do it again next week. So going into these races with an internally focused goal that you can control, like you said, smashing the climb or, you know, I'll go into a gravel race and my goal is to stay with the front pack of men, you know, as long as possible and work on my positioning and um, work on hitting it hard up the climb, that type of thing. And the goal isn't the placement. The goal is to learn and to grow. And I think that that is important mentally. Well, we're getting near the end of our time here. I think the Jen, thank you. You gave a lot of really great answers. It was, it was a real pleasure having you on the show again. Thank you. It was great talking with you all again. So that was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed in Fast Talk are those of the individuals. And yes, Rob, I'm reading this because it's short. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join. Become a part of our education and coaching community. For Jen Reel and Rob Pickles, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening.